The Supreme Court has wrapped up its October 22 term. As the court issues its rulings, allegations of ethics violations and impropriety have dominated the news and much of the conversation about how the term went. Where does that leave us and the credibility of the court as we look forward to next year? This is Defending Democracy, a weekly podcast from Democracy Docket, and we're your hosts. I'm Mark Elias. And I'm Paige Moskowitz. Let's get started. And so, Paige, let's just kick off where I think the conversation is uh, about the Supreme Court term. You know, last year, we were talking about the Supreme Court's decision to overturn a 50-year-old precedent and roll back reproductive rights uh, in the Dobbs decision. The Supreme Court had essentially redefined the Second Amendment and said that the right to carry a pistol in public was a constitutional right somehow. And the court did other stuff like cut back on the EPA, you know, that by relative standards seemed less extreme, but in and of itself was really a sharp departure from prior jurisprudence. So as we went into this term with that as a backdrop, and we were looking at what the court was going to hear uh, particularly in the two big voting cases, Morvey Harper, which was the independent state legislature theory case out of North Carolina, and the Allen v. Milligan, which was the uh, big VRA case, Voting Rights Act case in Alabama, there was a lot of trepidation. Uh, and it was definitely, Paige, a tumultuous term with that backdrop as those cases and others were being decided. Mark, I think in general, people get a little nervous when a major case goes to the Supreme Court, something like Dobbs, something like a voting rights decision. But like you said, because of the way the term ended last year with throwing precedent out the window in so many cases, the Dobbs leak, that undermined a lot of public confidence and trust in the court when the decision of Dobbs was leaked months beforehand. So People didn't start this term, this October 2022 term, with as much confidence in the court, maybe as they they would have. Yeah, and I think I, I think Paige, I mean, I'm curious on your thought on this. You know, there's been a lot of talk about the Dobbs leak, and conservatives, you know, are like this had to be done by liberals. I, I think it was clearly done by. I mean, I don't know any inside information, but to me, it looks pretty clearly like it was done by conservatives looking to prevent either Kavanaugh or the chief from bailing. And so when I think of like public trust, to me, when we talk about like, what did that leak do to public trust? To me, what it meant was that people were willing to play by rules to try to lock in the rollback of rights that were not really rules that had been played by before. Right, Mark, and we'll talk about this more later, specifically the way that Roberts kind of views the role of the court and the public. And you saw that a bit in the Dobbs decision, where he said the Mississippi law should be upheld, but we shouldn't overturn Roe v. Wade. But he still joined the majority in that opinion. Yeah, I actually had this I had this weird exchange page on Twitter where I, you know, I wrote something on this topic about uh, on, that's been published on Democracy Docket about John Roberts's like complaints about dissents, and someone was like, "I liked your article, but I disagreed with the part where you criticized the chief for." Um, 
Dobbs because he wasn't in the five justice controlling majority opinion. But but Page, like, what the hell? Like he voted, he voted. He still to, voted to, to uphold the law, and he yeah. he's the chief justice. Like he should be, <laughs> he should feel free to rule how he wants to in a case, and not try to duck out of yeah. it. Yeah, he voted against Roe v. Wade. Like that's like, like that's just like the fact. And like I, I, I the, the apologist for Roberts, I think on that, like just need to own the fact that he was in favor of overturning Roe versus Wade. That's how the prior term ended. We now go into this new term. Public trust of the Supreme Court is low. People aren't very excited to see what the court, well, let's be clear. People who support democracy and voting rights and equality and generally think that representative government is a good thing and government should not try to harm its citizens. We're not excited to see what the court was going to do this term. Yeah, and and in a lot of the discussion that we saw at the beginning of this term and really at the end of this term uh, about, you know, what reforms there need to be to the Supreme Court. I mean, we've seen as as we were talking about their various ethics issues involving gifts and disclosures, um, the fact that there was a leak uh, and the fact that the, the the court's rulings have been so jarringly um, uh, to the right. You know, it's hard to even know. I was trying to describe the other day how to describe where Justice Roberts sits in the court, because I, I hate to say he's a swing justice, because, number one, he's not really the swing justice um, in a 6-3 court. But also, like, swing suggests that the center of the court is the center. Like he's kind of like in the center of a right, of a right wing court. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not really like the center of a center court. No one would call Roberts a moderate by any by any means of his positions. Yeah, but but as 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 people have like come to like terms with this, and people like focused on this term, and like and what the, what the stakes were, there was a lot of discussion about the ways in which uh, Supreme Court reform could fit into this. And you know, for the record. For people who have asked me, like, you know, what do I think about this? Like, there's nothing magical about nine justices. Like, nine justices, the fact there are nine justices is kind of a historical accident. Um, and uh, there are lots of reasons to expand the, the number of justices on the Supreme Court that actually really have very little to do with ideology and how they rule. I mean, the fact is they, they are only hearing about 50 cases a, a term. We should just add some justices so they can get through their workload uh, and 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 do and hear more cases and uh, and be able to decide more things because there's a whole f- separate part of the legal profession right now that is being deprived of Supreme Court rulings on things that really are not hot button issues, but where you just need things decided where there's divisions among lower courts. So, uh, you know, for what it's worth, I think there are good reasons to expand the uh, the number of justices. But, Paige, what, what I think has gotten less attention is the other ways that the court has damaged itself, not just in, you know, like I said, how people talk about court reform, but, you know, Alexander Hamilton you know, famously said in in the Federalist Papers that the judiciary has no influence over the sword or the purse. And that's been kind of something that's been echoed over the years um, uh, by chief justices, uh, that, you know, their only power is the power of persuasion. They don't have the power to enforce their rulings. They just have the power to persuade. And, and there, I think, is a sense uh, that, at least I have a sense, that 
the court is, is really in danger of kind of like losing its authority to actually get the public to abide by its rulings. And I don't mean that to, to encourage that or to say, you know, you know, to draw a moral judgment on it. I think it's just a, a factual judgment. You know, this, this happened in the middle of the Great Depression where the Supreme Court was very, very conservative, was striking down portions of the New Deal. There was an effort to pack the court, at that point it was called, expand the number of justices. But less remembered was there was also a, a, a kind of a rebellion that went on at the state and local level where like states and localities were just like not going to abide by the rulings of the US Supreme Court on things like foreclosing on family farms or people's houses. So the Supreme Court had to bend in order to just frankly lose legitimacy, lose the, the possibility they were gonna issue rulings that states and localities and individual farmers and communities just weren't gonna abide by. And, and it, fe it feels like as we look at this term with the um, reproductive rights and abortion debate still swirling around, and Dobbs really not settling that, right? Kind of like creating this environment where it's just not clear how far the court's authority on, on some of these issues is gonna be, that that was in there, that was influencing how they were looking at some of these democracy cases. Mark, let's talk about those cases. It's Moore v. Harper and Allen versus Milligan. You know, we, have talked about these cases to death on this podcast on Democracy Docket before, so we won't get too that into the true. weeds. That's true. That's true. <laughs> We've talked about them a lot. We've talked about the background of these cases a lot, so we won't get too into the weeds. But to remind everyone, Moore v. Harper is the so-called independent state legislature theory case out of North Carolina, and Allen versus Milligan was the Alabama congressional redistricting case over Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And in both of these cases, in what kind of felt like a shock to some people, the court simply affirmed its precedents and really didn't do anything radical. Yeah. And, you know, part of what has been puzzling to me, Paige, uh, you know, we've talked, we've been talking about like what, how the court maybe has been thinking about these issues. Um, and the fact that it appears that the court really tried to steer a minimalist ground here, try to break as little new ground. Um, you know, in the Allen v. Milligan, the court basically reaffirmed the interpretation of Section 2 that's been in place now for, uh, for, for 40 years. Um, that's a great, that's great. I mean, I think it put some real wind in the sails of other cases involving Section 2, because I think there were some states that were anticipating that maybe Section 2 was cut back and they'd have more room. So I think that, like, that was a great ruling. Morvey um, um, uh, Harper, also a very important ruling. It, again, sort of took the wind out of the sails of people who wanted to create this new fringe theory. And we've, we've talked about that from the standpoint, uh, as you say, of what it means for the development of the law and other cases. Um, but Paige, I have to say, I've been very surprised by some of the commentary out there about these cases. Um, you know, the, the, the Moore case in particular, you kind of had like two camps of people who developed. Um, on, and I'm talking, by the way, not on the right. What was interesting is the Republicans on Moore kind of recognized it for what it was. But for people who are sort of pro-democracy, there were kind of two camps. There was like one camp that like wanted to act like this somehow wasn't a victory, that this was like just a secret defeat. And then there was another camp 
that was saying this was like the most important case ever. And like, I just want to be clear, this was definitely not the most important democracy case ever. Uh, if you think this case was the most important democracy case ever, then perhaps you have not been spending a lot of time worrying about the fate of democracy in the past. <laughs> maybe, so, maybe if it, the court had ruled the other way, we would we would be calling it that. Yeah, right, exactly. If the court's case, if the case had gone the other way, it would have been the biggest calamity to democracy ever. But like, literally, the people who are like, "Oh yeah, this is the most important democracy case in 250 years," I'm like, "This isn't even the most important presidential case." In, in in history. Like, hey, hello, Bush versus Gore. Bush versus Gore, remember, it was the concurrence though that actually originated this cockamamie theory to begin with. And certainly the, the Supreme Court's role in Bush versus Gore, um, I think, was more consequential than than uh, its failure to do anything radical here. But what but I'm curious, Paige, what why you think people on the left are so hesitant to embrace this as a victory. And I wonder if that doesn't stem from some of the psychology around these what these other cases have meant for the progressive movement. I think part of it has to do with the fact that precedent doesn't seem to hold the same weight as it used to before the Supreme Court. So while the Supreme Court ruled this way in 2023, you know, maybe in 2025, 2026, they may decide to go the other way. There doesn't seem to be the same finality, maybe, in Supreme Court decisions the way that we've always understood it to be. And I don't think we have that same security now. Yeah, and and I think that that's a fair point. And I think that that's right. And I, and I try to like acknowledge that with people. Like it doesn't mean just because the Supreme Court affirmed uh, the Voting Rights Act in Alabama in 2023, as you say, doesn't mean that, 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 that they won't do something different in 2025. The fact that they didn't embrace a radical fringe theory today is no guarantee they won't embrace it someday. But, but at some point, Paige, we have to take the cases and the wins for what they are. And like one of the things I think the Democracy Docket, you know, did a really good job, and I think you and your colleagues deserve a lot of credit for in the coverage, particularly of Moore, but really in both cases, was like, what does this mean in the here and now? Like, there are other cases in court today. There are other cases that could be affected by ISL if, the, if Moore had gone the other way, or other cases involving Section 2 if the case had gone the other way. And I feel like, you know, you guys have done a really good job of, like, keeping the, the, the eye on what is what is before us now. And I just wonder what more could be done to like get people to realize that that is a victory. If there are, if those, if, if, if people are able to have their right to vote vindicated in 2024, that's, that's okay. That's, you can, you can celebrate that without a guarantee that it will be there in 2030. The victory of now doesn't mean we have to be afraid of the possible losses tomorrow. And I, right, like we just saw the Utah Supreme Court hear a case over partisan gerrymandering in their congressional map. I don't think anyone would think that Utah is a state where maybe the most progressive policies are happening, but that court is hearing the case and is considering it. And Moore v. Harper made it so that that court could do that. I think that's a really important point. I think the other thing that defined the term, though, uh, to turn from the, the good to the not so good, is that both Moore and Allen came out towards the very end of the term, but were not the last cases of the term. And it did feel like those two cases came and there was a collective sense like things were gonna be okay for the term, and then came the final cases. And 
that I think has also contributed to how people will remember the 2022 Supreme Court term. I think that they will remember not just the bullets dodged, but also the damage that was done in the student loan relief case, in the affirmative action case, and in the, in some ways, I think the most institutional damage that w was done in the 303 creative case. Right, because like we said in Moore and Allen, the court really just affirmed what we already knew. In those cases, student loan, affirmative action, 303, the court really took a sledgehammer to what we thought about these cases and these laws. Yeah, and, and I just want to say a word about each of them so that people understand how they fit into the, the democracy movement, right? So setting aside the, them on their, on their merits, but how they fit in, how you should think about them if you care about free and fair elections and democracy. You know, we, talk, we talked a lot, Paige, about, uh, about more being about a made-up fringe right-wing theory. Like this independent state legislature theory was like literally just created out of whole cloth by a bunch of federalist society types. Well, I got news for people. While that was not adopted, there is another fringe right-wing theory that is completely made up, like completely made up. Like ISL was made up, but people could actually, if you ask the supporters of it where to find it in the U.S. Constitution, they would point to a provision of the Constitution that I don't think says what they say it says, but like I understand it. But there is another doctrine that they can't point to anything in the Constitution. Um, it's made up, and it's called the Major Questions Doctrine. And it basically says that, you know, statutes don't mean what they say they mean. <laughs> if we think, if we think it's like a really big deal, right? So like a statute that gives the president the authority to decide payment or deferment of student loans doesn't actually mean that page. Notwithstanding the fact they're originalists, notwithstanding they're textualists, like the language doesn't actually mean it because we think, we think now that under this doctrine called major questions doctrine, that if it's a really big deal for the country, right, forgiving student loans, really big deal for the country, that somehow it requires more than that. And I, I, I like, I kind of like don't know how to unpack that because like, but, but why? Like the language says what it says. And, and after all, Paige, we're constantly lectured by conservative justices and Republican uh, uh, lawyers that people just need to go off the plain text. That's how we wind up with this, these stupid Second Amendment cases. But yet here, when it comes to student loans, they have seemingly created this doctrine that allowed that that curtailed the president's ability to deal with a crisis of student loans because they just didn't like the outcome. And and if you look then at the affirmative action case, whatever people's views are about what Harvard University was doing or wasn't doing. It is hard to reconcile how the US Supreme Court says it was not overturning its prior affirmative action cases in this case. Like, I, I listened to a podcast the other day, Paige, I'm, you're gonna be very disappointed in me. I was listening to this podcast the other day by a woman who used to write for the New York Times, a conservative columnist, named Barry Weiss, and she did this thing, this panel on, on the affirmative action case. And she had on like a couple of conservatives who were like very earnestly saying, oh no, this didn't overturn the Supreme Court's prior affirmative action cases. 
And I, I was like literally shouting at my car, does anyone think that the state of Michigan can continue to use the admission standards that were approved in Grutter today? Like, is that, are the conservatives, is, are the conservative activists who brought this case against Harvard, are they gonna be like, oh, if everyone just does what Michigan did, we're all fine? No, they don't believe that, they don't say that. So like, it's interesting because there seems to be a, this need for them in light of all of the drama around Dobbs and Roe, for them to act like in a case like that, they didn't actually do anything when they clearly did something. We also know that Supreme Court rulings have far-reaching implications beyond just whatever question they brought up directly. Like, for example, the affirmative action ruling is affecting redistricting litigation because Louisiana officials are now saying to federal court in Louisiana, hey, as you consider this Section 2 redistricting lawsuit challenging our congressional map, maybe you should also think about how the affirmative action ruling could impact the case. And this isn't a hypothetical. This is a court filing that they made the other week. Yeah. And they, you know, they like said it full throatedly. And, you know, I think they're going to lose. I think, I think the Fifth Circuit, um, as conservative as it is, is going to feel like, okay, the U.S. Supreme Court literally just told, <laughs> told us this uh, in Alabama and we're bound by it in, um, uh, in Louisiana, uh, uh, which is the case where they filed it. But... I mean, would you be shocked, Paige? Like, would you be shocked if a very conservative judge at some point was like, hmm, yeah, that kind of makes some sense? Well, we're seeing it in the abortion pills case. We're seeing it, the issue with single-member judicial districts in the federal court where if they can't get it done in Louisiana, I wouldn't be surprised if they tried to do it somewhere else. Right, and you... you touched on something that the court has not addressed um, and which I think people should be on the lookout for. Um, uh, it got a little bit of traction. I saw recently Democracy Docket actually covered this, and I thought it was actually one of the most uncovered things that Democracy Docket covers. Um, but this whole single-judge single judicial district thing is is like a real problem. Like there are these one-off conservative judges that states know that they can run, or conservative activists know that they can go to where they are guaranteed a certain judge um, who will then issue nationwide injunctions. And um, I, I know you guys reported on some, um, some activity around that about trying to curtail that. Uh, but it's also something I suspect is gonna come up for the chief justice because you know, he is the administrator. He is like the overseer of all of the federal courts. And you would think that is something the chief justice should speak out about if he is worried about the legitimacy of the judiciary. Like, maybe he should say something about the importance of that as a reform for the federal judiciary. Chief Justice John Roberts is definitely worried about legitimacy of the courts and how the public receives it. Maybe that's why they were a bit more cautious in their approach in voting rights cases this term, but not in other areas. Of course, the news of the Supreme Court isn't just the rulings that they've made, it's their PR problem, which is allegations of ethics violations from this term. And people really realizing that the Supreme Court really has no rules. There's no one to make sure that justices are on their best behavior besides John Roberts. Yeah, and I, I, I think that um, I, I, the, the Chief Justice hasn't asked my opinion 
Um, so, you know, like take this as unsolicited. But John, advice. if you're listening. <laughs> but, but, but if the chief is listening, I, I don't think the way out of this is to say we are an independent branch of government and therefore it would be inappropriate for us to have any rules. I mean, let me, let me give you the, a couple of other independent branches of government. Um, the U.S. Congress. Okay? The U.S. Congress has all kinds of gift rules, ethics rules, disclosure rules, and they too are an independent branch of government. And in fact, their members are actually elected every two years or every six years. So if you wanted to get in the game of like who should, who would have a theoretical construct of like we should not be subject to these bureaucratic rules, members of Congress could argue it's them because the elections serve as a check on them. But yet, notwithstanding that, they are subject to a, to a whole panoply of rules. The executive branch has a whole series of rules. And as we've, as former President Trump is learning, those rules apply to the president <laughs> and the former president. So I, I just think the Supreme Court's not going to get very far being like, we can't have rules because we are the judiciary. If anything, it is the unelected branch that you would want to have subject to the most stringent rules because they are the least accountable. There, there are fewer mechanisms, only impeachment is available. There are fewer mechanisms to deal with judges who, who are not abiding by these rules. And of course they apply to lower judges, lower court judges, they just don't apply to the justices. And so I think that is, that is fundamentally not a tenable place for, for the chief justice to try to stake his ground. Right, and let's remind everyone, the nine justices of the U.S. Supreme Court are the only members of the federal judiciary who don't have an ethics code. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like, I just don't see how they get there. And they're a thing like, well, we're constitutionally prescribed as a branch of government. Like, yeah, so is the House, okay. so is the Senate. You know, like, where does that, like, thus what, uh, Chief Justice? <laughs> we've, we've all read the outstanding reporting from ProPublica documenting, you know, Harlan Crow's relationship with Clarence Thomas and the gifts and trips and tuition payments that Harlan Crow has, Harlan Crow and friends have made to Clarence Thomas. Or, you know, the, the fishing trip uh, Alito took with a hedge fund billionaire who then Alito felt the need to defend himself in a Wall Street Journal article and say, you know, this, this seat on a private jet was gonna be empty if I didn't go, so I might as well have gone. And then tried to justify it even more and be like, I actually saved people money by taking the billionaire hedge funds private jet, even if he may eventually have business before the court. Speaking of business before the court, um, as quickly as one term ends, we start focusing on the new term. And it is fair to say that in the 2023 term that begins in October, democracy will again be on the docket, right Paige? It's gonna be on the docket and I think next term will begin the way that this prior term did as well. We have historically low approval ratings of the court. A recent poll from The Economist and YouGov show that only 39% of Americans currently approve of the Supreme Court. And oh, by the way, we're headed into a major election year where we're gonna have more, not to, not to steal the conservatives line, but more major questions presented before the court. <laughs> about how people are gonna be able to cast their ballots and make their voices heard. Yeah, and I, so I wanna preview two things for people to think about as they think about next term on the Supreme Court. 
The first is um, we have not, you know, in 2023, we did not hear as much about the so-called shadow docket. Uh, the shadow docket is the way in which, in, in increasing frequency, um, conservative justices have issued theoretically temporary or emergency rulings, you know, staying decisions or enjoining things that, as a practical matter, are outcome determinative for the next election. So if you, you know, the probably the best example of this from 2022 page was when the Supreme Court, using the shadow docket, stayed the victory that had been achieved in Alabama, right? Alabama had been ordered to create a second majority black district, and the Supreme Court, using its shadow docket, blocked that from going effect in 2022. Only to, by the way, then in 2020, in 2023, and Alan V. Milligan say, oh, yeah, by the way, this, the court was right in Alabama. But that's cold comfort to the voters who voted under illegal lines in 2022. So, so the first thing I want to predict, Paige, is that we will be spending a lot more time, again, talking about the shadow docket and whether the conservative justices try to use that as a way to influence what, what rules are in place and not in place for 2024. And Mark, this isn't just a hypothetical. We know for sure that the court will issue rulings in at least two cases related to voting rights next term. Both of them have to do with congressional redistricting out of South Carolina and Arkansas and allegations of racial gerrymandering. Because of the way that federal law is set up, the Supreme Court has to issue a ruling on these cases. They will hear oral argument first in South Carolina. We don't know if they'll do that yet in Arkansas. But it's not, it's not a hypothetical. We know it's coming. Yeah, and that South Carolina case is the second thing that I wanted to focus, focus people on. Um, it is curious that the Supreme Court granted oral argument in that South Carolina case. The South Carolina case was a, is a lawsuit that was brought by civil rights organizations saying that the state of South Carolina had engaged in racial sorting, okay? sometimes referred to as racial gerrymandering, that they had created, they had sorted voters based on race without a good reason to do so. It was not in furtherance of the Voting Rights Act. It wasn't for any other reason other than for racial sorting purposes, which is prohibited by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. What's curious about the case, Page, is that the law around that kind of claim, these constitutional claims, not Voting Rights Act claims, these constitutional claims, of, of impermissible racial gerrymandering, that's a pretty settled area of the law. And, you know, I, I had the uh, good fortune of litigating several of the most recent sort of landmark cases in that area, Cooper v. Harris, which was a case out of um, North Carolina, um, Bethune Hill uh, versus um, Virginia, which was out of Virginia. Um, and the court on really a, um, by a wide ideological margin, adopted a test in those cases and some others along with them uh, on what is okay and is not okay. I mean, you know, when I say wide ideological consensus, I mean, you had in the majority opinions in those cases, you had Justice Thomas and you had Justice Ginsburg. I mean, they weren't all 9-0, but they, these were like 7-2, Six three nine zero kind of things like people. There was more, more or less a consensus that states couldn't do what the what the trial court in South Carolina said that they did. So the question becomes, why then 
is that case being heard by the Supreme Court. Um, and so my antenna is up because uh, that if, if the Supreme Court were to roll back the protections provided by the Constitution to that are afforded black voters, that would be a whole, whole other thing than the Voting Rights Act, right? We talk about the Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act is a statute, and the Voting Rights Act prohibits certain kinds of discrimination in voting. But the 14th Amendment itself provides a really, really vital protection to minority voters um, uh, in, uh, in voting rights and redistricting. And as you point out, Paige, you know, the 14th Amendment was weaponized by this court in the, in the affirmative action case. And you're seeing that now resonate uh, being sort of used by conservatives and elsewhere. So I'm very focused on why, what, the, what the Supreme Court's interest in that case is. Mike, I'll also flag that South Carolina lawmakers have asked the Supreme Court to kind of expedite this case. They would like a resolution by the beginning of 2024 so that it can be squared away in time for the elections in November of 2024. So this may be a case that happens very quickly in the coming months. Yeah. Yeah, and I hope it does happen. I hope it's a unanimous or near unanimous decision affirming the decision below. Um, and affirming the Supreme Court's prior uh, protections uh, of, of, of black voters from the kind of um, impermissible racial gerrymandering that, again, it appears the trial court found in this instance took place. So we're going to be following all of that um, as, uh, as we move forward. Uh, you know, 2024 is a major election year. Um, we don't know the full docket of cases that we'll hear uh, in 2023 and 2024. We won't know that because, as you know, the Supreme Court adds cases to its docket um, in the fall and then throughout the term. So there may very well be other uh, election cases and voting cases added to this Supreme Court's um, calendar. Um, but the role of all of us, the role of every citizen, everyone listening to this, is to pay attention. You know, I think it's fair to say that that the 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 public attention on the Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs has made an impact. Like it has made an impact. It has made an impact um, uh, in electoral electoral terms. I think Republicans lost elections places because of it. I think it's made an impact as we've talked just in the last few minutes about how the court has approached other cases. So. The, you know, the big takeaway, I think, is that everyone listening to this needs to pay attention and needs to be engaged and not disengaged because it involves a bunch of lawyers and a bunch of legal doctrines. You know, if you are not paying attention to what is happening in courts, you are simply not paying attention to what's happening to our democracy. Uh, I hope all of you do that. Thanks for listening to Defending Democracy. You can find out all about the cases and court filings and articles we mentioned today in the linked descriptions of this episode. Today's episode was produced by Paige Moskowitz and Ali Rothenberg. It was edited by Paige Moskowitz. Defending Democracy is a production of Democracy Docket LLC.